Hey, 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 everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the show, A Voice to be Reckoned with, your host, Brandy Joy. Guys, today I have a very amazing woman here today by the name of Lori Golden. Lori Golden, let me tell you people, is a very strong woman and she's amazing and um, and I, I appreciate her for sharing and being so open and so willing with her story. And I just want you guys to take a kind ear and welcome Lori Golden and listen to her story. Voting isn't just going to the polls on election day anymore. Options like early voting, mail-in voting, and ballot drop boxes are available to more voters and are growing in popularity. How to Vote, a tool created by Democracy Works, breaks down the options your state offers for casting a ballot, empowering you to decide when and where to vote. Democracy works best when we all vote, but misinformation and confusion about election procedures have resulted in low voter turnout. How to Vote, a tool created by Democracy Works, takes the guesswork out of the voting process. How to Vote is easy to use and helps folks from all over the country overcome many of the process barriers to voting. Democracy Works is committed to helping you vote no matter what. Their tool, How to Vote, does just that. And these are some examples. You can sign up for election reminders, see what's on your ballot, get step-by-step assistance requesting your ballot, explore your options for returning your voted mail ballot, check your voter registration status, find your polling site, and make sure you have the appropriate ID. Listen up. Decide when and where you'll vote this year at how to dot vote yes decide when and where you'll vote this year at how to dot vote please go check this out now Hey everyone, thank you for joining me, A Voice to Be Reckoned With, with Brandy Joy. Today I have a special guest here with me today, Lori Golden. She is the author of the book, House of Lies. And I'm um, Lori, I'll just go ahead. Are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Hey, hi, Lori. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to let you tell our listeners who you are. Okay. Well, I'm a psychotherapist and I work with trauma and abuse survivors. And I, my book, My House of Lies, is my memoir of growing up with incest. And my recovery also involves 32 years of being in Narcotics Anonymous. And the, the whole point of me writing my book was mostly so that I could help people understand really what it's like to grow up in a home with incest. And um, I work with burn survivors through the Burn Institute. Um, I work with you know other kinds of survivors, not just sexual abuse survivors of all kinds of trauma. 
So that's pretty much, I'm a licensed clinical social worker and I have a private practice. Okay, wow, wow. Thank you for sharing. Um, Lori, can I ask you, uh, how, did you how did you come about um, working with the, the burn survivors? Yeah, um, I had a client years ago who, uh, he was more longer um, than, yeah, he was a number of years ago. And he introduced me, he wanted me to speak about PTSD to the um, Burn Institute. And I talk, gave the talk and then met with the director at that point and she thought it would be great for me to be helping and assisting. And so what I do now is run a support group twice a month for them. And I also do their adult retreats and their family retreats. And my client was a burn survivor. And I, he came to me, we were working on PTSD, a number of things, but I worked with him and I worked with his wife and then I did couple therapy and and it just you know I just it was a great situation and he's on the board of directors now for the Burn Institute so long story short that's how I got connected okay amazing okay wow you're uh, you're amazing <laughs> uh, I admire that very much Celery. Um, so I noticed you said that you um, you were in recovery. You've been in recovery for 32 years, Narcotics Anonymous? Yeah. Yeah, Narcotics Anonymous, yes. When when did your struggle be, begin with, um, with your, uh, I mean, obviously you were <clears throat> an addict. So when did your struggles begin when did um, become an addict? Okay. Um, I was 18. I swore I would never do drugs. I came from this um, community of um, five guys lived in, in this community that I came from in Merrick, Long Island. And it was a middle to upper middle class kind of community. You know, nobody, you know, did bad things in that community, except I, <laughs> I have incest. And five of the guys were uh, heroin addicts at the time. So I thought I'm never going to do drugs because I watched their lives get out of control. And growing up, there were a lot of incidents with these guys um, in, my, in my personal experience. So I just never thought I'd get into drugs. Well, college, I got into college. I was 18. And I remember Simon and Garfunkel, and I did my first joint. And it suddenly, I felt like this was the answer. And it grabbed me in such a way that it's hard to describe, but it felt like something that could ease my pain. And I didn't have a, th a conscious thought of that, but it just felt wonderful. And then you start chasing that high in lots of different ways. I did it with pills. I did it with Coke. I did it. I did a lot of different kinds of drugs. I didn't shoot heroin because I thought if I didn't shoot heroin, I'm not a drug addict. So, you know, we tell ourselves why we're not a drug addict. But I, when I got into Narcotics Anonymous, um, 
in my earlier years, I did multitude of drugs. But when I got in at 37, I was doing, uh, set, you know, a Valium throughout the day and I was doing sleeping pills. And that was my biggest thing at that time was doing prescription pills. And I went to like different doctors and I got medications and, you know, I, I thought, well, this isn't, you know, I, I kept thinking I'm out of control, but at the same time, I felt like, well, their doctor prescribed, so it was okay. So that's really, and I hit my bottom one day. I was in my apartment. I tried to throw out my pills. I was feeling, I moved from New York City to San Diego. And so I thought if I change my atmosphere, if I change from the big tall buildings and the concrete and the bad weather, and I, I love the ocean and I'm a ve very much a nature person. So I thought if I move to San Diego, that'll cure my problems. And when I got here a year later, that's when I hit my bottom because I realized my insides weren't changing. My outside mm -hmm. changed, but I started to see, I was feeling increasing terror in being alone. Um, in New York, I lived in an apartment complex. So we had a doorman building and moving to San Diego, I lived in an apartment complex. I didn't have a doorman building. And it's, I started feeling really scared. And that started increasing over the year before I finally got into Narcotics Anonymous. And really I was sitting on my floor in my bathroom, throwing out my pills crying hysterically and knowing that I don't know if I could live with all the pain that I felt inside me. That, that was my biggest thing. And somebody, you know, in my apartment building, well, the manager actually was in recovery and she ended up taking me to my first meeting. So, and I've been with Narcotics Anonymous for 32 years now. Wow. Wow. So, um, you know, that I've always said that marijuana was a gateway drug so yeah you really it really you know you know everybody has their their opinions about it they're like oh no or and some people might not have had that same story but the way you just colored it and you put it in your your story it really is a gateway drug because you were chasing that yeah it was yeah. for me mm -hmm. and you know addiction's interesting because you can really get addicted to um, pot, even if people don't think it's addictive. It's psychologically addictive and it eases pain. And what happens a lot of times, it eases boredom. And it, it's an answer for people in a way that it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't be answering those needs. Like for instance, if you're a teenager and you're bored, and you smoke weed, you're going to gravitate towards smoking weed every time you're bored. Mm. It starts progressing in that way. So the, the feelings inside of us that we don't want to feel is what leads to the ultimate, you know, the whole process of addiction. It doesn't just come one day. It's a whole way of being in yourself that leads to that yeah 
for sure. Maybe that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, so can I ask you what, um, there was trauma in, in your life that you experienced that, did it have, was it the reason behind you, um, trying to escape? Yeah, it really was. Because when I got into Narcotics Anonymous, within the first six months, I started having really terrifying feelings at night. And I felt like inside me, I felt like a little girl. And I started slowly coming into these images that I, I, I drew and I paint. And so I put these images in my book, but there were images of me sitting in the hallway and I was like seven years old. And I was, I could see that I was frozen and terrified. And I didn't understand what that picture was telling me. And then I started having dreams that were, you know, at night in a boat and a shark was circling around my boat. And the terror that I felt in this, in this dream was immense. And I thought, how could this be true? I come from what I considered to be a very good family where we went skiing and boating and camping and we did all these things as a family. Why am I a drug addict and having these images of being terrified? It, like it, nothing, I realized nothing matched in who I thought I was. I started realizing that well, now I'm an addict, so that's probably the first time I ever said anything that was truthful. Because I, you know, we, I lied in many different ways. And some were obvious, some were not obvious lies. But you learn to do that for survival. And because when you're sexually abused as a child, you, it's, you do this thing called disassociation. And you separate yourself from what's going on in your body. It's like a way to get away from the moment when you can't get away. And it kind of reminds me of a prisoner of war that is building a house, you know, on the walls. And that's how he got away from the experience. And I saw that movie and I thought, wow, maybe that's what I did in my life because I felt like it resonated with me. I don't know why I felt like this prisoner of war I could relate to in a very profound way. And I started having flashbacks and it took me about six months into uh, Survivors of Incest Anonymous as well as Narcotics Anonymous to start realizing I was an incest survivor. At first, I didn't know what this, what this was inside me. You know, I felt like I was a jigsaw puzzle and I threw down the puzzle on the floor and all these pieces were spread out in front of me. And I knew they were all pieces of myself, but I didn't have a clue how it went together until 
I got the picture of incest. And then I started making sense. And at that point, it was terrifying. Don't get me wrong. It's a very difficult, um, it, it's breaking silence. It's, it's not living in secrecy anymore. It's con it, you have to confront shame and self-blame. And the, what I realized my whole life that I did was blame myself. So I did food addiction as a result of that growing up. I, I was in my house exercising at night when I should have been asleep um, because I ate some food earlier in the day. So I had this kind of anorexic bulimic, exercise bulimic head. I wasn't vomiting and I wasn't doing laxatives in that sense, but I was exercising once I ate. And it, it was all I knew from a young age was trying to control my body. And food addiction was one way I could do that. So it becomes a, ver a web of a lot of different things um, when you start probing into this kind of recovery. So I just said a lot, so is there anything? <laughs> oh, no, 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 I was very engaged, wow. Okay. Oh, that's yeah, okay. Could you um, tell our listeners a little bit more about, huh? Yeah, go on. Oh, could you um, tell us um, tell us a little bit more about your um, what you experienced as uh, as from your uh, incest? Yeah, um, self hatred, shame, mm -hmm. self blame. Um, I didn't understand this when I was growing up. For instance, I had, I was a really bad reader. I couldn't concentrate. Lo and behold, I, you know, we look at kids having reading problems today. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting because that was my, my PTSD. I was in PTSD symptoms back then. I was five when I, when my father started and who could concentrate once you have a night with your dad doing sexual crap to you, you can't get up in the morning and go to school and not have problems. Right. So they kept testing me and they kept sending me to re reading tutors. And it was really shameful for me because all my friends were good readers and I was like really slow. And I really thought I was stupid. And then I would, you know, want to, like, I felt like it was, basically, I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't good enough. That's, that's how, what you start to believe about yourself. When you start having trouble in the outside world, in situations like school. And I just had a lot of school issues. Um, I never felt comfortable. Um, I, it was hard for me to concentrate. It was hard for me to make sense of things. And yet at the same, and, and, and in the same way, I showed them that I had a certain kind of an intelligence. So people were very confused by me, you know, growing yeah. up. And that led to me taking on, I must be stupid. I must not be good enough. If, if I was good enough, people wouldn't be, giving me the kind of attention that they're giving me. And I didn't remember when I went to school, I would get up 
from a night of being up with my father, I'd wake up. I remember in, I wrote about this in my book, there was this feeling of daytime is like a spotlight. And I felt like I had to go downstairs and eat breakfast with my sister and my mother would be making breakfast. And I had to hide, this was at five years old, I had to hide what happened in that bedroom. So it really starts at a young age where you start living in secrecy. Wow. I, I didn't want, I was threatened. I was told, you know, many different things over the years because my abuse with my father went on from five to 16, on and off, on and off. And he was out of control. And as I got older, it was more and more scary. And he threatened with killing me. He threatened when I was younger, he used to say that my mother would hate me and she'd leave. So, you know, you, you're given these threats. So you have no choice as a child, but to live in secrecy. So here I am, I have this life that looks good on the outside, but really I was incredibly alone. Even though I had lots of friends, I had this secret that separated me from everyone. And it kind of feels like when you're, kids when they're younger and they're bullied and you have to, you can't tell anybody or when something happens in your home that if you have an alcoholic parent or you have some weird stuff going on, you can't tell anybody because it's shameful. It, it, kids take on the shame of what their parents are doing and they think it's their shame and it's not. It's their parents' shameful behavior. But kids, nobody tells you any difference. So you just kind of want to hide. So every time I got any kind of recognition, I would go to lengths to try to hide the recognition that I got. And I felt like my father would get turned on and my mother would be jealous. Mm -hmm. I always felt that she would be jealous. I felt from a young age that she was jealous of me because I was very good in, in skiing and water skiing and everything we ever did. I was really good in, uh, um, in, as an athletic performer. And I know that she used to compare me to herself a lot throughout my growing up years. And that caused me shame because my mother is making it seem like I'm better than her, and yet I'm being abused by her husband. It did not make sense. It was complete insanity in my head. It was just crazy making. That's why my book's called My House of Lies, because I grew up with one lie after another. And when I was a young child, I disassociation took this form for me. I was sitting in a corner that those images of sitting in a corner and being terrified soon led to me being in my room and everything in my room coming alive. I remember the doll's eyes looking at me. I remember alligators under my bed. I had butterflies on my wallpaper. They came off the paper and were flying around. I was terrified. So I was able to get to the end of my bed, not touch the floor, 
and jump into the hallway and then made it to the corner in the hallway because I wanted to get to my parents' bedroom at the end of the hall thinking, which a child thinks, that's where I'm going to get safety. Not thinking my dad's in that room too and nothing's going to be safe. Children don't understand what this is about. So I, re I remember on the side of, at the, on the, before my parents' bedroom, there was a banister on the first floor. I was on the second floor in the hallway in the corner and a huge, big, hairy ape was living behind this banister. It was real as can be for me. And I remember here, I, I had these smashing of the teeth that I heard as a child because what this ape took on was the sounds that came from my father. And I, it, I gave it to the ape. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what kids do so that we can survive in our home. We don't, we don't see who the perpetrator is. We make it into something else. Does that make sense? Yes, very much so. Yeah. yeah. So, I would just um, be terrified to go down the hall to get to my parents' bedroom. I mean, it was, a, it was a, a, like I was walking through a war zone and I was running behind trees, darting from one tree to the next, you know, in order just to get into my parents' bedroom. Oh, my. Yeah. And of course, my mother pulled me into the bed. She put me in between her and my father. And oh, no. that's when... He wouldn't abuse me, but he would put his arm around me and I'd be in his smell. And I was consumed with feeling, he, he, you know, smelling him, seeing her on the other side of me and feeling completely alone and trapped. It's oh, really man. horrible. That's a lot for a child to bear. Like, that's a whole lot. It really is. And what amazes me is the courage and the strength that I had inside me that I didn't understand that I had. I mean, I had all sorts of creative things, separate, disassociating myself from what was happening. Like I would, I created these magic carpet rides where I would fly out the window and I'd be like in this daylight, at this place where it was daylight always. And we can do that as children. You know, we're really creative and we're really imaginative. The problem is, is an abused child doesn't learn the difference between fantasy and real. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, <clears throat> it's very, uh, it, it touches, you know, because I, I work for the last maybe seven and a half years, I've worked in the education field, you mm -hmm. know, and, and I, you know, I've always tried to understand, you know, not try to understand, but I understand yes. that uh, you never know what a child is going through at home. And yep. so, you know, when they come, sometimes coming to school, you know, is there a safe place? You never know. Yeah. So I try yeah. to just, you know, no matter what, how troubled they are, you know, you never want to just go in on them always negative, 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 kind of, you know what I mean? Because I, I, yes. I don't know what they go through at home. And obviously there's a reason, you know what I mean, for, mm -hmm. you know, their behaviors. And so, um, you know, a lot of things, you know, are just, you know, kind of you know, touching home, home for me, 
you know, because you, we have those different kinds of kids that are the reader, the, the, the exactly what you said, about, exactly. Just yeah. about your, your reading and the, you know, the one that's always kind of not really there, but there, you know, kind of just like out there. And yes. I always wonder like when really what's, you know, what's going on and. Yes. You know, I mean, you when never really it, know. You never really know. And when kids are there, they can't, and they can't make eye contact or they withdraw or they're, they seem weird. There's, you know, there's so many factors, but kids can be brutal. And, yeah. you know, we make fun of kids that are different in any way, that, that somehow they've decided is, you know, is a different kind of kid. And I didn't have bullying in that way. I had more of the sexual abuse kind of bullying for me. I mean, it was, to me, that was the ultimate bullying because oh, yeah, for sure. I, I had no power whatsoever. Yeah. Well, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I know, um, it's a big topic. Yeah, it is, it is, but it, it's uh, something that to, needs to be, you know, be, you know, heard. And I, I'm thankful for you, you know, being so open and able to share with others, because because it could touch somebody, it could, the right the person, uh, never know, can listen and then realize, you know, that they know someone or that it's them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know? you know, the organizations, Me Too organization, and you know, you have this mix of people responding to an organization like Me Too and. What I love about the organization is it gives a voice to people and it allows people to come out of secrecy and get a voice. And the more we bring into the foreground this dilemma in society, because it's not just sexual abuse in the home, it's sexual abuse from trusted, any kind of trusted adult. I've worked with so many people that have been abused by the church, by a synagogue, by a neighbor, by a grandfather, by, you know, a teacher. And, you know, Boy Scouts of America was big, you know, had a big expose about them in doing this. And boys and girls are the victims of this. And then we grow up and then there's, it's, you know, inappropriate sexual abuse in the workplace. Um, you have it as adults, you get raped or something happens catastrophic like that in your, um, where you're almost losing your life and you're threatened. And then you're left with all these symptoms and people yeah. don't get how, how the rape victim who it can have survivor symptoms just like the person being abused on a job because the thing that's in common is you have no control. Right. And so there's lots of things that need to come out and be talked about really in society. Yeah. Yeah. People treat things, you know, it makes people way uncomfortable and it's like taboo and it's like, but I mean, these, this is, it's what's happening and, and it's not going to go away just because we don't talk about it. No, you know? no. And you know, I, I'll tell you the thing that I really hate the most is that people who have money 
or in a different, a certain economic status, really believe that this stuff doesn't go on in their hometown. Really do believe it. It only goes on with poor people. It only goes on in certain classes in society, but not ours. And yeah. that, that's why I feel like my book and my is so important because no, it does go on. These are the mm -hmm. people that are helping keeping it going. Yeah, I was reading something the other day. I think I was taking a mandated um, reporter, uh, you know, reporters um, training, and it spoke of uh, like a lot about how high percentage of sexual abuse and any type of abuse was more common in uh, key, uh, low income homes or the kids with uh, one mother, one parent, or you know, alcoholic, you know home, you know, but it was geared way more to the low, you yeah, know, income it is. or dis disabilities, or you know, but yeah, I, thought, I found that interesting. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> you know? it's not accurate. It's really not because, you know, who, there's different kinds of sex slave trade and who, who are the consumers of this? A lot of times people with money. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, you have to have a lot of money to get to be able to even be involved in something like that. Yes, yes. To buy something. I mean, you know, there's a lot of taboo about looking at this in all walks of society. And I've had experiences of being in wealthier communities and not wealthier communities, and it all goes on. It, it alcoholism, drug addiction. This isn't a, a, a societal, this isn't an, an economic level. It's based on people from all walks of life. Yeah. yeah. All communities. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking when I was reading these things. I was thinking in my head like, okay, so there's a single parent in the home, so, or lost their job, or, you know, I'm like, so that, does that what, I'm trying to like, thinking in my head, like, okay, well, make that click for me, like, so that means the parent, you know, there's only one in the home, so they get so stressed out or whatever that they want to abuse their, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you, we didn't come from economic stress, and, <laughs> and I had a mother and father, and we lived in a nice home, a nice neighborhood, and um, this was going on in my home. Even though this is a presidential election, there are many more candidates on the ballot besides the president. Go to Ballot Ready for a nonpartisan guide to your entire ballot. From there, you can compare candidates based on stances on issues, biography, or endorsements, and then save your choices to use when you vote by mail or in the voting booth. You can even request your absentee ballot or make a plan to vote early or on election day. This election matters. Make sure you have a plan to vote and vote informed. This year, with changes to polling places and vote by mail laws as a result of COVID, it's more important than ever to have a plan to vote. Local elected officials affect our lives every day. They decide who to prosecute, monitor the quality of our drinking water, and choose the leadership of our schools. 30% of voters take the time to vote and then leave some part of their ballot blank. This is a missed opportunity to choose the leaders of our communities. 
It's okay if you're unfamiliar with some of the more local positions. We recommend hosting a ballot party. Get together with friends over Zoom. Split up the research and go through your ballots together. Go to BallotReady.org. Go to BallotReady.org. B-A-L-L-O-T Ready.org. Enter your address to make a plan to vote and vote informed. Go to BallotReady.org, please. This is very important that you vote and you vote informed. Thank you. Wow. So I don't buy when they focus on a certain class in society I, because it's not true. It's not true. It can come down from all powers and economic levels and, you know, throughout the country, throughout the world. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, and it puts out there that ignorance to to others and to our to our young people that oh, it only happens to you know what I mean yes. people like me or and they see other people and they, they become envious because they're like oh you know they don't have these problems like you know what I mean it, yes. it kind of makes a separation there and feel like have nothing in common and it and does more common than you even know <laughs> it does it single it really does it's like it makes you feel like wow, if they only knew what's true about me, you know, I always was hiding. And I thought my friends looked like they were living such good lives. And, but everybody looked at my family and thought we were living good lives because we went in a station wagon and we went skiing as a family and we got into our, you know, we walked across the street and went to a boat and it's, it's the facade of how the outside looks. It's not the way the inside is. Right. And that's, you know, the outside in a poorer community looks like the inside. So it's easier for people to understand that or to think that way, but not these nicer communities. Hmm. Wow. I'm just oh, well, that up because that's that's a, a real issue of mine, the yeah. way they teach about in school still, the way mm-hmm. they teach mandated. You know, it, it it just doesn't it doesn't portray an accurate picture. It doesn't. No, not at all. No, and then and when you when you think about it, when you if you go about it that way, then you actually miss. You know, what I mean, you, you you're kind of not even looking for the right. You know, what I mean. Yes. I think because you're just focusing on, oh, okay, so I'm going to find this more in a, you know, a child that has you know, this is going on or that, you know, not over here at, uh, you know, well, Sarah, because, you know, her, you know, she's a, you know, her dad's a doctor, her mom's this, they come yes. from, you know what I mean? So there's no way she could have. Yeah. At the same time, she's probably portraying the same symptoms and, and, and shut, shut off and, you know what I mean? And, you know, all those signs you said that a child would have, but I'm not even looking at her because I'm like, yeah, no. Yeah, that's a really big, that's a really important point because we don't look further if we have this preconceived notion that only from a bad community could this take place. Mm. You just, and this is true for 
a lot of people in society, you know, operate in this way. Well, they can't be having trouble because look at the money they make. And let me tell you, there's a lot of trouble behind money. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You started there. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a lot of trouble in those families. I mean, I've met a lot of alcoholics who are very wealthy people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have all the best things in life. It's same with drug addicts. Yeah. You really can't really spot it. You can't just, you know, it's all walks of life, you know. No, it's, 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 it's need, what's needed is open communication about this stuff. Yeah. And personally, I think children should be educated about sexual abuse early in age. And I think it should be something that's specially handled in school throughout mm-hmm. children's growing up years. Yeah. I mean, we teach stranger danger and we teach, you know, um, a fire drill. Exactly. But yeah. we don't teach children how to recognize some perpetrator. That, that's right in their backyard that they, they live yeah. with. <laughs> yeah. Or in the school. See? Yeah. 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 There's right. a so lot don't of talk to a stranger. Right. You know? Yes. Don't talk to a stranger. Well, don't talk to your teacher that's trying to get too close to you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know? But it's confusing for kids. It is. It is. And it's so hard for someone... You know what I mean? Like you can't, like say for, for me, example, I, I, you know, there's, there's boundaries and there's things you can't really, you know what I mean? But that's a good thing they do have, like, you know, cause you have to, the mandated reporting, you know, but at the same time, it's like, you, you want to help, you know, you have to watch word and, and things you say, you know, when you tell kids, don't talk to strangers, but don't, you know what I mean? You can't, I yes. can't really tell them what you really want to tell them. Just kind of touch around. But don't talk to but don't talk to somebody who's close to you that's looking at you with a weirdness in their yeah. eye. Yeah, mm-hmm. that you know is going on. Yeah, or if it doesn't feel right, boundaries and touching, you know. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah, you know, sure. it's amazing that children are so intuitive with this stuff, and we don't give them permission to be that way. Because the truth is, when something is happening to a child, you, you really, it's almost like you freeze and you're in the moment and something's happening and you start, you're not breathing well and your, your air supply is kind of being cut off in, in, as this is going on. You go into confusion, you go into fight or flight, you want to run, but you can't. You know you have to respect this adult because that's what we're taught. And it, it's, really, it's really powerful stuff. And, you know, you mentioned mandated reporting. When I was um, in my first two years of Narcotics Anonymous, I called CPS on my father. Oh, wow. And because my nephew at the time was 14, and I knew my father had access to his home. And a couple of things my nephew said, I got alerted. I was in a program, a county program at that time for sexual abuse. They, I talked to people about it. They said, this really is something you should report. And so I went back to New York and I told my niece and nephews at the time who 
were in college, early college years. Um, my niece and my, my older nephew was, my niece and my younger nephew weren't in, you know, were still living at home. And I told them about grandpa sexually abusing me because I was gonna call CPS the next day on my father having access to my sister's home. And it turned into not looking at my father, but looking at my sister who wasn't being a protective parent. It was very interesting. It caused so much pain to my sister and it caused me to split away from my family. Nobody wanted to be connected to me at that time. Uh, I lost everyone. Not that I had, you know, I, I confronted my father and I told him I'd never see him again. And I knew that this is before I called CPS. And, but, you know, even with this mandated reporting, there is so many things that are so frightening for kids. They can't just speak out. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. You know, because they have to like go home, you know, depending yeah. on if they removed or not, but they have to have to go home with the, you know what I mean? The parents and still. And mom or dad. Mm -hmm. It's what you know at a young, when you're younger, especially, you just know this is mom, this is dad. And that's the way it goes. <laughs> you know, you yeah. Know? You think it's like that everywhere. Everywhere, yep, exactly. Until you get older and see it's not. Mm -hmm. And like you said, we don't have, uh, you know, that anyone teaching, you know, them really like how to go about when they are in these situations besides the earthquake drill and the fire drill. Like, what if yeah. it's in the home? What if it is your own parents? You know what I mean? What, yes. what do you do? And that, that's really like a touchy thing because nobody's really going to want to touch on that. Especially nope. not in schools. <laughs> no, nope, they don't yeah. want to. Although Erin, I think it's Erin Marin. She has, um, she wrote a book um, about her story of sexual abuse. And um, she has gone to different, she has made it during the Obama administration. She um, really went around the country trying to talk to lawmakers and decision makers about having some education in the schools, in elementary, all the way up through high school. And um, a number of, of people, I, I, there were, I think, a number of states that were signed up for it. And, um, but of course, they never got the, I don't think they've gotten the funding that was put aside for this. So it's interesting. There's always a way in which it's blocked. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a it's a tricky it's a tricky thing when it comes to uh certain certain things that will allow into school that you'll be like, that's baffling, but you wanna yeah. allow, you know, it's like yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. It's like yeah. mm, I, I don't see the sense in how you expect a child to function as a, a good student, a good uh citizen, you know, uh at all if they can't function as just a, a human being in general because they have all these issues so now they have all this and now you they go to school and you want them to learn this and learn that into these grades and do that but you don't want to address the fact that they have things going on probably have things that are going on at home oh my god yeah that make them not be able to concentrate mm -hmm. you know it's it's 
Yeah, it's a really big dilemma in society. I mean, this this touches on so many different things. It really yeah. does. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like um, my son, you know, I finally got him into a, a school that I, I'm okay with, but uh, he had dealt with um, at his last school a lot of uh, was bullying, and yeah. it became physical. You know, and then the last time it was just like, okay, I'm done. You know, and then there are people saying, well, you got to get him in school. What are you going to do? You know, uh, he needs to be in school. He needs to be in school. In my head, at this point, school doesn't even matter to me. I said, my son's safety. Yes. The school couldn't assure me any kind of, of any resolution or anything they could do to. No, I know. Better. And they I just know. looked at me like, sorry, you know. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I guess he won't. And so I feel safe where I put him. He won't. He's 12. He, he'll be okay. It's not like he's going to college next week. <laughs> you know, yeah. but uh, it was pointless for me to keep sending my son to the school. He was always in the office, like they told him to, when things happened, and he wasn't learning anything. No. You know, like, why am I sending him here again? And he's being basically tortured, and he can't focus because someone's always doing something, throwing something at him, you know, uh. just confronting him, trying him, uh, uh, humiliating him. I felt so helpless and so just horrible that he had to even. Yeah, he's, he's really a good, good kid. He's really just the sweetest. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Boy. Oh, yeah. yeah. It has nothing to do with how nice a kid is. It has mm-hmm. to do with the bullies, you know, that that whole um, mentality. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Oh, man. But, and you know, I'll I, tell you, Brandy, I've worked with so many people who were um, bullied in school and it had affected their whole feeling of safety out in the world. Like the world wasn't safe. People weren't safe, mm-hmm. you know? And it's an awful thing to have to go through. It really is. And then it nobody, really you know, the school is like a dysfunctional home. Nobody says this is going on. Let's stop it. <laughs> it's like, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. they find all sorts of excuses and reasons and, oh, you know, but it really, it, it, they pretty much ignore it. And so it's really good that you acknowledge that about your son. Oh, yeah, for sure. I know I'm his uh, number one advocate, you know, if we don't do it for our kids, then who else will? Because it's already an unsafe world. They feel unsafe, um, helpless, and alone. So, I mean, the parent has to be that, we have to be that one for them, you know? Yeah, you do. You, you have to be where they can get honesty. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what parents need to learn. You know, it. so many parents never share their own personal stories or struggles about their own lives growing up because they want their kids to think that they're strong. Yeah. And yeah. then you believe, well, mom never cries or mom never, you know, loses it or mom, mm-hmm. you know, and you never get to see really what it's like to be human exactly i was just having this conversation the other day with someone and i said i don't know why parents try to hide things from their kids and make it seem like that you know what i mean they, that they never oh. did any of those things and you don't do this you don't do that or you know but you but you have or you still do or you're going through it and it's like they need to see that that you're a real person this is real life you know and that yes. if they, you know if they could connect you know like I mean, just as far as even 
seeing mom and dad a healthy amount of uh, arguing or just be, you know what I mean? Or just whatever it may be, because this is real. And we should, you know what I mean? And show them how it's handled, you know, how, but just lying to them about everything that, that goes on or that you're going through is just, I don't see that as, as helping them at all whatsoever because they're, you're the one that they're learning from. And so. Absolutely. Uh, Especially mm-hmm. teenagers. Mm-hmm, you know, yeah. parents, I say to parents that come in, you know, like who have been, who are in recovery. And I'll say, did you share this with your children? Oh, they don't know. And I go, how do they not know? Wow. I mean, why is it that they can't know? And, you know, they get scared because of how their children will feel, you know, bringing it all out into the open. So parents lie and continue to pretend that things aren't what they are. I was just talking to a woman uh, yesterday whose mom's an alcoholic and she has to, you know, pretend and, and every time her mom relapses and goes, you know, she, she's hoping this will be the time that it'll help. And, you know, kids see what's going on in their homes they live it day in and day out. They don't always know what they're feeling or why they're feeling what they're, you know, they feel tension, let's say. They feel it on a deep level inside them. We feel that tension. And we confuse because we don't know what's creating it. And we're watching our parents and we're watching things and we see lies and we see things that... Mom says she feels good when you know she feels awful, you know? Um, it, it, it's just so, um, it, there's just so much BS that goes on in, in, with adults and their children because yeah. they don't want the children to see that they messed up. Mm-hmm. And who hasn't messed up? Yeah, it's so, it's so unrealistic. You know, it's like, okay, well, everybody else has in life that we don't know, but <laughs> yeah, but right. never me. You right. Know, like, come on. <laughs> but also, yeah. it's the teaching moment for kids. Yes. How yep. if you share with how you messed up with something, and then you share what you learned in your own personal journey in getting better, that's like a wonderful teaching experience. Yeah, it's the best. Yeah, you, know, you have it right there, you know, from, from your, from your parent versus, you know, how you go out and you get the, the, for example, the, um, the firefighter to talk about, you know, or, you know, just other people to come in and talk to your kids about this thing that they experienced or something like that versus your parent that actually went through it, you know what I mean? And yeah. can teach you and, and help you and walk you through it. That's why I always tell my son, I'm like, no matter how much you think it's going to make me upset or whatever it is. You can tell me anything, you know, because I can't help you unless you tell me the truth, you know, unless you tell me the truth, you know. Yes. And what kids feel often that I work with is, well, my mom can't tell me the truth. Mm -hmm. So how can I tell her the truth? You know, not to say you're not doing this, but so often the problem is, is that there's lies in the family. So, and yet parents really want their kids to talk to them. So I have no doubts that you meant what you said with your child. I know so many other people who take the other approach, which is, 
Um, I want my son to talk to me and or my daughter to talk to me, especially when they get into teenage years. And I ask them, do you talk to them? Do you, are you honest with them? And so often they're not. That's true. So a kid doesn't want to talk to a parent that's not being honest. Yeah, very true. Very true. I find myself sometimes having to think before I, you know, tell my son certain things about, about my past. Like, is this the time? You know, because I can overly share it. <laughs> yeah. We're very open about things, you know, but, you know, so I have to kind of hold back like, nah, maybe this wasn't one of those stories I probably should. Right. But, you know, I try to, you know, let them know like, hey, I've had these you know, things happen to me. and or, or I tell them if you have any questions, if you want to know anything, feel free to ask me and yeah. I will try to be as, you know, open. And, and if I don't, you know me, if has any, he hasn't asked me anything like really at, at this age that, that um, you would think that a 12 year old should <laughs> be asking. I have to kind of like bring up stuff. Yeah, this is my only child, my first and only. So I still I feel know. like I'm new at this still too, because I have a teenager and now. I have to re- actually remind myself, okay, this is that time where you should probably be talking to him and, and checking, you know, in with him about these certain things because this is the age. Yeah, you know, you know, it doesn't come with a book, so it's not like I'm just gonna know that, you know, stuff. I have to tell yeah. my, I have to train yeah. myself, kind of. <laughs> I know, I know, it doesn't come in a book. And you know, the other thing that I I want to say because. The, the high, the junior highs and high schools, so many of these students, kids, not, again, I'm not talking about your son, but the, the in general, I've seen so many um, exposés on kids learning about sex through porn. Mm. Because it's so available in the world. And yeah. have you seen any interviews by kids talking about that? No, I haven't. I haven't. And uh, I totally disagree. Right. Totally disagree. That, that's just a whole different image painted that, oh. you know, you, no. <laughs> it's not about respect and mutual agreement and choice. It's about abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, um, a, it, it's abusive in the porn industry, to, mm-hmm. the way they portray it. Yeah. And, I just CBS News had some really good things on um, kids and porn and how they were learning about their sexuality in those ways. And, you know, all this stuff is daunting for parents. It really is. I mean, yeah. the age of the internet, it's daunting. Yeah. It's yeah. The wild West out there. Yes, it is. It is. And there's things out there that we don't even know. That's why we have to keep it. We have to like keep up to date and like check in and, and, and look, look on our our child, you know, see what they're doing, put you know perimeters and stuff. Because I've been blown away by the the stuff I come across, and I'm like, what? I was yeah. doing that when I was that age. What's going on? Yeah, right. Barbie dolls. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, know. I know. I see but, even in younger ones too, like the, the younger, you know, because they're around the older ones, or or like you say, just don't know what's going on in the home, but they just seem so like, like I see really, like young kids that that know and the, the, the words that they choose, you know what I mean? Yes. When it has to, when it comes to uh, their sexuality and being, you know, kind of like just inappropriate if you really want to <laughs> ask ask no, me. No question about it. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's scary. Very scary. 
It was very scary having my son go to junior high and high school. I mean, there were, there were parts of it that were very difficult. And, um, and, you know, I had to learn at times when to keep my mouth shut and at times when I needed to speak. And, you know, it, it was just, it would, we really do learn as our kids grow grow up we really too it's every every year is a kind of learning experience in and of itself because yeah, you, it is. you've never done this before at this year yeah totally you know? so it's 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 not easy it's scary and it can be wonderful but it also can be a, a lot there's a lot out there and there's a lot of things that parents get to see out in the world and of course you don't want your child to be exposed to any of that yeah 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 it's very very scary and um his his father he lives like in a whole other state and sometimes he'll ask me he's like how's it going and i'll tell him he's like well what do you mean you know and i don't think he gets it i'm like this is not a plant that I'm, you know, raising here. I'm just watering it and growing and feeding it, you know, every day. I'm like, I have a whole like life in my hands and I worry and the world is a scary place. I know. You know. And when I send him out there every day, I always tell people, this is how it is for me when I send my son out to go somewhere or with someone else. It's like me taking my heart out, like ripping it out and then handing it to somebody and say, please bring it back safely the way I gave it to you. Oh. And, you know, just being terrified oh. and just kind of worried, like, oh my God, I hope everything, you know, yeah. so. I used to say, I used to say to my son, you know, when I got scared, I would say, because every, we, that's part of being human, you know? And I would say to him, look, I'm scared. This is why I'm scared. I'm not saying this is going to happen to you, but nonetheless it scares me because it can happen it, i've seen it happen so mm-hmm. there are times you know like when he started driving oh my god talk about your heart in oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> that's i mean that's a whole other that's a whole other thing but it, just even having them leave your house and going out into school mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's hard yeah because we're powerless over so many things that are happening out there. Yeah, very much so. Uh, even um, I want to touch on, um, you know, with the uh, the uh, school, uh, the shootings and thing. That one right, right oh, there. Every time God. I hear one, my body, I just get really tense in my heart. Always, you know, just drops. Especially that the latest one that was uh, up here in, in L.A. Yeah. You know, and came down to it, it someone that, you know, a lot of times it has to do with uh, how someone being treated at school or bullying. Yeah. You know, and it yes. just really just uh, ter- terrified. It's very terrifying, you know, because it's so realistic and going to happen. And right. where. I, right. And it's just amazing to me. They talk about gun control, but they don't talk about educating students about why this type of thing occurs to begin with. Mm-mm, nope, they won't touch on it. It's baffling to me. I know. So here they say, oh, he was he was bullied. I mean, all this information about him comes out, about the person, and no one saw anything along the way. Exactly. <laughs> it's like no one did anything. 
anything. You didn't see nothing, no signs, Richie. All of a sudden, it just just came to school, just, just shooting, shooting away, huh? You know, exactly. That's exactly my point, and why I stress so hard. And I'm trying so hard, you know, with this this bullying campaign. And um, you know, I'm one person, you know, but my heart, you know, is just way just overly in, into it. Like this is my my mission, but yeah. I just get a little not discouraged, but just a little hurt by how much so many people don't really care, or maybe I don't know if it's not care, but a lot of people won't do anything about anything unless it's happening to them directly. Yes, you yes. know. Yes. And that's what I want to stop. Because maybe and, if we do something uh, now, yeah. it yes. won't. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. That's no. that's really where my passion is too out in the world is opening lines of communication that mm-hmm. people just don't let this stuff slip back into the uh, background, like keep it in the foreground, you know? Yeah. Yeah, cause I it's I don't know I just feel like at when it hits when it comes to the point where children feel like that's their only you know way to deal with this by taking their own lives and I keep coming across all these stories more and more and more there there was just the the recent what well, wasn't recent I think it was last 2017 was this one there's more prior but the girl that uh her she um the her parents came home and she was hanging but they had been telling the school that. She was being harassed oh, yes. and called yes. ugly and yes. and just all these things. And then yes. right after she, you know what I mean, when she, you know, committed suicide, they still went online and they're putting memes and all the stuff up saying this is, you know what I mean, her and this is her. It was just, and they did a coffin and they, it was just kept going and going. And yet still no one touched on, on the, the fact of the, the kids, whoever that were doing this. I know. You know, it's like, when, know. Do, when does the consequences you know what I mean? Kick in. What happens? Because they have these policies. Supposedly, you gotta go to your school and ask them, or wherever state you're in, what's the policy for bullying and all this is that? Because it's supposedly a law. Okay, great. But what happens now? What's the consequence? What happens next? What happens? And right. I've yet to hear anything about uh, any of these, bu- the you know, the uh, perpetrators or the bullies or the kids that are behind it, take given any kind of help. consequences, or help. help or help or anything, because they need help too. I- consequences help and handled in a way that they are taking seriously yep and you know it, it's amazing to me because, and then we wonder why we have these mass shootings mm-hmm. i mean it's it's just it, it's just the insanity of how people you know i think we sometimes i say we've come a long way and other times i don't know yeah yeah it's it's i don't know we as a a a human as a race human beings are um not quick learners in many ways Uh, uh, i used to tell people i said i thought common sense was free but i guess not (laughs) yeah (laughs) are you registered to vote headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org, where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for Election Day. Are you registered to vote at your current address? More than 60% of eligible voters 
have never been asked to register. Headcount.org is working to change that. At headcount.org, you can also check your registration status. Millions of people get purged from the voter rolls every year. Everyone should check their registration status every year. The deadline to register to vote in some states is as early as October 4th. So you want to check before then. You can also request an absentee ballot. Get info on early voting. Find your polling place or see what's on your ballot. Headcount is a nonpartisan nonprofit that tours with musicians to help con- concert attendees register to vote. But you don't need to leave your house to register or get voting info. Just visit headcount.org. Register to vote at headcount.org. Register to vote at headcount.org. H-E-A-D-C-O-U-N-T dot org. Because this matters. Hi, my name is Brandy Joy. Here at Voice to Be Reckoned With, we welcome all people from all walks of life. There's no judgment of what you've been through, what you've done, where you've come from. This is a safe place to come and be yourself and speak for yourself and have that voice. If you stand for nothing, you fall for anything. Be, st- be strong in your truth and never ever let anyone decide your self-worth Brandy Joy Singleton at a voice to be reckoned with and thank you and God bless <laughs>